Hey everyone, John Horgan here. We just called the election. Now I know it's not what we all thought we'd be doing when 2020 got started, but this pandemic has set us all back. Everything's changed and there are unprecedented challenges ahead of us. Right now, we need to know that people are with us in our plan to fight this pandemic and build an economic recovery that works for everyone. We can't afford to be sidetracked by another 12 months of partisan politics. Another year where the other parties can turn us back when we try to make decisions to help people. The question now is, where do British Columbians want to go and who do they want to lead them? I'm asking for your support to keep BC on the right track. Like a lot of things these days, this election is gonna be different from the one we had three and a half years ago, but I know we can do it safely. And together, we can keep BC moving forward not for the people at the top, but for everyone. British Columbia isn't just a beautiful place to live. It's home to hardworking, big-hearted people who want a better life for themselves and their families. We're facing hard times right now, and that's why BC needs a real plan to keep people safe and rebuild our economy. I want to serve you as Premier of BC with a renewed and exciting BC Liberal team who will bring back prosperity, growth, and hope for the future. We believe that no matter the challenge, our brightest days are still ahead of us. When we put billions of dollars a year into fossil fuel subsidies, we're not on the right track. And subsidizing the oil and gas industry, approving Site C, and undermining food security for the northeast of our province, carrying on with fracking, which will massively increase because of these massive subsidies. And when fracking undermines groundwater and our air, I can't endorse that, Mo. I can't mm -hmm. say that's good enough. It's not good enough. And so Andrew can choose to endorse anybody he wants. But I intend to build a far, far greater, much larger infrastructure and I intend to welcome people to the BC Green Party who never imagined that they would be here because this is the political home they've been waiting for for their whole lives. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is a special emergency episode of Politicoast. Today is September 21st, 2020, and damn it, we're actually doing this fucking thing. I'm Scott Delunderboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Off the top, you heard clips from John Horgan announcing that we're headed to an election on October 24th, 2020. BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson making his initial pitch for their party. And BC Green leader Sonia Fursnow critiquing the current government. The clips of Horgan and Wilkinson came from their respective social media pages. And the clip of Fursnow came from the latest episode of This Is Van Color with Mo Amir that was recorded last week, I believe. Check out that show, Van Color, for the full interview. Before we jump in, as a reminder, sign up to support this show at patreon.com slash politicoast to support, I guess, our ongoing election coverage. There you can get access to our exclusive patron Slack channel, where the political conversation, both provincial, federal, and municipal with our friends at Canby Report, continues nonstop. And a reminder to register to vote and request a mail-in ballot if you so desire. I can do it online. It's super quick and easy. I did it uh, myself today. You just need to go to elections.bc.ca slash voting slash how to vote by mail with hyphens in between there. And we'll throw a link in the show notes. Let's get into it. We're doing this damn thing. So the unofficial reason that everyone knows 
for this election is that the NDP is up somewhere between 15 and 20 points in the polls over their opposition. And it feels like a damn convenient time to turn a minority into a majority. But I thought we'd break down the official reasons John Horgan gave in his press conference after meeting with the Lieutenant Governor for why we need an election right now. I think the main one he spoke of was stability, you know, sort of a strong, stable NDP majority government. Like the language Harper used in 2008 and 2011, only swap NDP for conservative. But noticeably different is that unlike that period in Canadian federal politics, the last couple of years at BC have not been wracked with, you know, constant speculation of snap elections. The past couple months excluded for the most part. It's has actually proven to be a stable configuration, and there's really no sign that was going to change at all. There was a couple moments where Andrew Weaver would throw up his arms and yell that, you know, this is a red line. He did that around LNG, and I think once or twice in other situations, but no one took it too, too seriously, and he tended to walk those back. And as far as we could tell, Sonia Fersenau was eager to uphold CASA, the Confidence and Supply Agreement, until October 2021, like had been agreed upon by her caucus and the NDP's caucus. Yeah, there was just simply no sign that there's any actual instability in the BC legislature. And that kind of goes into the next part about not wanting the instability and speculation for the next 12 months, but the only real instability and speculation has been caused by this government in their lead up to this election call. One area that might have changed or might change quickly was if Andrew Weaver, as rumors suggested, was going to resign his seat in the next couple months. That would put a by-election in Oak Bay, Gordon Head, which could go to the Liberals and could change the math such that the NDP and Greens, I think, would be unable to get legislation through, except they would not die necessarily on confidence votes because every vote would go to the tie with the speaker. And so the government would continue, but unless they could bring over a liberal on occasion or have a liberal miss the occasional vote, it would be political stalemate. Well, yeah, that really does seem to be a, a, you can trust this bridge when you come to it situation. Nobody knows whether or not Weaver would have resigned anyway. And Say he does resign, you have six months to call in a, a by-election. There's no real rush on this one, so that also rings very hollow. There was a little bit of blame thrown at the Greens by the Premier. He talked about bills that were held up over the summer and an amendment passed on a spending bill. I think we've talked about those two bills in the past, and they were talked about in the press conference today. One was a energy policy bill where the Greens thought there should be more consultation with Indigenous communities, and the other was a addictions and mental health bill that dealt with involuntary uh, confinement of minors who were admitted to a hospital for addictions issues and overdose issues. That latter one, John Horgan suggested very strongly that it was just the opposition and the Greens that held that up. But there was a lot of protest about that bill and a lot of questions about that bill outside the legislature as well from civil society and a number of other groups. 
and the spending bill amendment seemed very inside baseball. It's kind of thing I think we both missed. And so to bring it up now seems kind of petty. Oh, it's super petty. And it's hard to say, you know, this government is unworkable just because a party with three seats put forward an amendment. It's farcical is really what it is. I think there are stronger arguments in terms of an election now versus in a year, though, that were laid out. The discussion about, you know, this pandemic isn't going to go away. So we are going to hold an election during a pandemic, whether it's now in the spring or one year from now. Right now, we have a sense of where we're at. I think you and I both agree that it's trending in a bad direction, but hospitalizations aren't out of control. So we don't know where it will be in a year. And so if things aren't terrible right now, and given that we've seen elections in other jurisdictions around the world be held safely, doing it now is not totally unreasonable in terms of the safety aspect. It's still not great to pull everyone's focus away from this. I'm not too concerned about anyone catching COVID at the polls. Although someone does, it it probably is John Horgan's fault in a roundabout way. But more to the point, it's the fact that we're clearly in a second wave. The, the trend line is going in a very worrying direction when it comes to new cases. And these things come and go in waves. At some point in the next couple months, we'll likely be at the point where cases are trending downwards. And you know that would have been a better time to call this. And... Yeah, I don't think we should pin our hopes on a vaccine or anything, but looking at it 13 months from now, it is much more likely we have a vaccine approved somewhere in the process of being distributed to the population than now. The last kind of reason, and it will depend how the campaign plays out to decide how good of a reason this was, but the idea of giving British Columbians a choice in how this is perceived and how this goes forward. The idea that, you know, we should go to the people and get a mandate, whether or not you agree Canadians give governments mandates or not, but at least put forward a vision for what the recovery looks like. And notably that a recovery will be more than the next 12 months, it will be for 10 years. And so presenting competing visions Hopefully, we get three strong visions for that and not a lot of negative politics, but we'll come around to that in a minute, does give us the opportunity to reflect on how we've come through this pandemic so far, how it's been managed by the government, and whether that deserves praise, additional ground, or if the opposition presents a different vision, one that you know appeals to more people or something. It gives us a chance to actually debate and stop and take a little bit of consideration on how things have gone and should they go a different way. Yeah. On the flip side of that, though, is we elect governments not knowing everything that's going to happen over the next four years. In 2017, nobody had pandemic response as their ballot question. Same thing in 2000. Nobody had, what are we going to do about 9-11 when John Trachen won that election then. And we give governments four years. They're empowered to deal with those situations. We didn't rush to the polls after any of those other 
instances, if a pandemic is so important, like it doesn't necessarily follow that six to 10 months into this thing, that if it, it's so important that British Columbians weigh in right away, that we, we can wait that long for it. And on the chance for the input, I mean, just going off of what the NDPs put forward last week, what we talked about with their restart, rebuild, a stronger BC thing they put out. Fundamentally, that's not charting a, a different course than they ran on in 2017. I haven't done a side-by-side comparison with their platform, but maybe there's an extra billion here for something. Arguably, it's more pro-business. Yeah, that, that might actually be the case. But like, it's just not really the case that, that they're, you know, want to radically upend the social contract or anything. It's, from what we've seen, it's more or less a, a business as usual, the thing you would expect an NDP government to do in this situation. And British Columbians in 2017 voted with that in mind. Not, not knowing the specific situation, but the sort of responses that a government of this configuration would put forward in the event of a crisis. That's where I somewhat reserve judgment through the campaign to see what is put on offer, because there is the chance that they do put forward a radically different vision. Now, one of the best counter arguments to an election that I've heard is, why haven't they taken the Trudeau essentially approach, or at least the approach Trudeau has mapped out, and we'll find out on Wednesday if is sincere or not. But the idea of all right, things have changed. We're going to even prorogue and have a new throne speech and chart what needs to happen going forward. And if that doesn't survive a confidence vote, then we'll go to an election because it's been forced. Instead, as we've talked about for several weeks now, this has felt pushed. Well, this has been pushed by the premier's office. This has been pushed by the party itself. And so it comes off as more opportunistic now, whether people are still paying attention and still debating that in a week or two, I think will depend on how many issues come up during the election itself and how much we turn our attention to the shiny things on offer versus the somewhat you know, tiring debate over just should we have an election during a pandemic? Eventually, we just get around to, all right, we're having it. How is it going to play out? Well, I think that depends a lot on whether or not anything happens with respect to the pandemic. We are one big outbreak in a school away from like the NDP's chances just cratering, and the narrative becoming all about the you know a reckless election. They they took their eye off the ball, and it's a very high, it's a much higher risk play than I think the NDP are treating it as. Very much so. I think I saw one journalist tweeting out today that he's been covering politics for 20 years, and his the first election he covered was way back in the Ontario election of Peterson versus Bob Ray. And Peterson, he says, started with a massive lead in the polls only to lose to Bob Ray in the end. I don't really believe in fate or anything like that, but... If you did, this would definitely be tempting. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of goes to something the Premier said a couple times during his press conference 
which is something along the lines of, you know, if, if British Columbians can go to the grocery store safely, they can vote safely, which, hey, I don't think anyone's really too concerned about the actual mechanisms of voting versus the, the broader pandemic developing through society and a government that's not as responsive because it's on the campaign trail. But besides that, like, I don't think the argument that you're not going to die going to get food is as a compelling reason to hold an unnecessary election as the premier seems to think it is. And we're six months into this and going grocery shopping is still kind of stressful. You're still inside with a bunch of people you don't know. You're always having to you know, watch where you're going, keeping space and everything. And if something as routine as that is a source of stress in people's lives, putting this onto them as well, it's not necessarily going to be something that British Columbians respond well to. And you can't really blame them for that either. Temperamentally, I don't think very many people are really clamoring to weigh in on the direction of BC versus just kind of wanting to get through this. And they have enough going on in their lives just trying to do that. It's going to be a real challenge, I think, for the NDP to actually break through kind of the, the emotional drain that 2020 has had on everyone and kind of rally them around John Hording doing an unnecessary and pretty transparent power grab election. Well, if the NDP are going to have difficulty grabbing people's attention, then it's going to be at least twice as hard for the opposition parties, both the BC Liberals who've struggled to get headlines for several months now, and then especially the BC Greens. And I think it's worth taking a minute to dissect a little bit of the responses both of those parties have put out. And I haven't managed to see enough of either yet. But like you heard off the top, they have campaign frames starting to come out. And through some of their initial reactions to the press, they've both had feelings come out, let's say. Let's start with the BC Liberals. I mean, the clip I played off the top, their 30-second video is kind of standard BC Liberal fare of economic prosperity for BC. But what was really striking in the last couple of days on their social media and in their discussions with reporters today was a real pivot to talking about being tough on crime. And they have a meme out and a petition about public safety and to tell the NDP's Horgan, it's time to crack down on crime, really leaning into the growth of tent cities and what they call dangerous criminal activity and open drug dealing in our streets. All of these things that kind of follow inevitably when a lot of people are out of work and we're still in the midst of an overdose crisis. I watched the full Andrew Wilkinson press conference and everything, and it, it actually didn't feature that heavily. I, I think this is one of those things where Twitter kind of took it and ran with it, which it's a campaign that's going to happen. It, you do have to be prepared for it. But what seems to me odd is like, public safety is something people feel pretty viscerally about, and like, no party is going to do well citing statistics when there is a much more kind of direct and visceral reaction people are having. But in the midst of the biggest public safety crisis in decades, it, it seems weird to focus on crime uh, as opposed to well, the pandemic and everything else associated with that. If you want to create a, a sense of unease among the voting public to capitalize on it, it seems to say 
much bigger source of unease out there. Yeah, I think it's partially motivated by the like liberals calculating what their path to victory is. So their goal in this election will have to be to hold the 41 seats, I believe it is, they have right now and pick up another three and then they have a majority. It's not that far. It's also not that far for the NDP, but they have the polling advantage. If the liberals assume they can hold their current seats, they can then aim for a couple in Maple Ridge, for example, where the NDP narrowly won in the last election. If they can pick up Oak Bay, they have a majority government. And a major issue, as you and I both know, in Maple Ridge in the last couple of years has been the growth of tent cities. And I believe the last municipal election was fought on this tough on crime agenda and really focusing on that approach to responding to these issues. What I would have loved to see and what I have appreciated about BC politics when it's at its best is when there's kind of a cross-partisan consensus that we need more than a police response, frankly, to these issues. It was Sam Sullivan who pioneered the four pillars and really trying to take a broader approach. Like harm reduction has not been controversial in BC largely as an approach because we recognize across the political aisle that it's not enough to send the cops in. We also need to have wraparound services to support people. On that front, the Liberals dropped an ad today where part of their complaints against this government and their unnecessary election was not giving people the support they need, I think was the line. And the visual that paired with that was one of these tent cities. And it's a thing where I'm not sure it necessarily comes across great when Andrew Wilkinson is at a press conference trying to communicate first when they're actually not doing it so much off the cuff and have prepared it. So I, it may be a thing where the party actually gets it and it's just typical Andrew Wilkinson awkwardness, which isn't a great thing when it comes to your job is to actually communicate with British Columbians. Yeah, especially in an election that's going to be very leader dominated because with the lack of in-person events, we're going to be very closely following the leaders and it's going to be very hard to follow all the local and individual campaigns. Yeah, exactly. And that was the other big takeaway I got from watching his press conferences. He just actually really needs to step up his game. I think he managed to work the word cynical into every single answer he gave on the press conference. But I think more problematic for him is that he kept trying to argue that this was a reckless move by the NDP because they were turning their back on a stable government. And if your pitch to British Columbians is my opponent represents stability, that's not going to be a winning play at all. And that they need to find a message that has a much better framing for them because there was very little I saw out of that press conference that wasn't either very awkwardly trying to respond to an admittedly cynical play by the premier or basically repeating the same talking points they've been using for the past two decades or more that felt a little out of place in the current situation. It's hard complaining about the socialist hordes at the gates when we've had three and a half years of government that hasn't really been so radical that 
too many people are mad. Like there are some wealthy homeowners who are not very happy about extra taxes. There are some people who own multiple extra properties in hot real estate markets who aren't very happy, but that's a small voter base overall. I have to imagine like these vacancy taxes are not hitting the vast majority of British Columbians. And while they may not be doing everything necessary to cool the housing market, they're still rather popular. Yeah, notably, I don't think he actually mentioned affordability once in there. They have a definitely a challenge ahead of them. And I just spitballing here off the top of my head, taking a much more of a, this is a failure of leadership. You know, the, the premier's responsibility is to lead the province through a crisis. And the premier has decided to selfishly not do that, force an unnecessary election and walk away from the helm of the province to throw a naval metaphor in there for some reason during a storm. That's the sort of argument that I think would be a lot more impactful and and not expose the liberals to anywhere near the sort of problems that this government was just too damn stable. Yeah, we'll have to see what the liberals are able to present in terms of a positive message because they will have to present something. It's not enough to just say this was a cynical ploy but you need to be able to say this was a cynical opportunistic ploy. Therefore you shouldn't trust them. We'll continue in the vein that we've all agreed on as a legislature and sort of play up that continuity. Well then also like if you're not willing to write a full platform as the BC liberals, then at least say we agree with like most of what's been done, but we think here are some, a couple small areas that could be done better. And here's how we would, cut taxes after that or whatever the standard line is or how you would deal with the deficit in the end because those are bc liberal talking points yeah you, you can't run a campaign very successfully on just the other guy sucks ask andrew Shear how that worked out ultimately especially in, in a time where people are really feeling a lot of uncertainty and worry you need to be the government in waiting you need to send the message that you're ready to take over day one and can do a better job, not just because the other guy sucks, but because you actually have the better ideas. And I heard nothing in that vein. And looking at what Andrew Wilkinson was saying, or I guess listening to what Andrew Wilkinson was saying, it was like he's trying to run for leader of the opposition. That's the job he has now. If he, That's what he wants to do. He's running a fine campaign for it. But he's not actually running the campaign on day one that you'd actually need if you want to really be premier. Well, let's maybe pivot because we'll talk lots about Wilkinson and Horgan going forward. But there's a third party that's got a realistic chance of holding on to some seats and possibly growing or possibly disappearing. And that's the BC Greens under Sonia Furstenau. One of the challenges perpetually for a minority government situation is the junior partner gets a lot of prominence and does really well during their time in office. But as soon as things go awry, or as soon as you go to an election, they often disappear from the political landscape after that. We've talked about this a bit before in the past, you know, the BC Greens risked this going into an agreement with the NDP. And it feels like if they're not very smart in this campaign, they're at risk of being wiped out in this election. 
their ceiling might be four, five, six seats. I suspect Sonia Personnel is going to run on a lot more ideas. And we already have seen some of them through her leadership campaign and in some of the initial conversations that she's doing. And she has strong critiques of the NDP's record, particularly on things like LNG and Coastal GasLink and how that was handled. I didn't manage to see her response to the announcement today, but I saw secondhand through a number of journalists on Twitter who were listening in on it. And they noted the strong sense of betrayal that she espoused, the anger that's uncharacteristic, they described it, of her. Maybe that's what it'll take to start getting her some more attention. Did you catch her press conference at all? I did. The The audio on a question is really hard to hear, so I, I kind of only got one side of it. But yeah, there's definitely a, a sense of anger, and you can be as angry as you want about this, but we were talking back when the CASA agreement was first signed about how it was likely to be abandoned at some point before the full four years. And yeah, it sucks for the junior partner who's kind of left holding the bag on this one, but that's also just how these sorts of situations work. I mean, you can ask the Lib Dems in the UK how well it worked out being the junior partner coalition there. The problem is that the senior people get all the glory and your supporters will blame you for anything that didn't go the way you wanted to. It's really hard to come out of that situation ahead. And not only that, you got to know everyone is just doing it because that's what's politically convenient. And great if it gets honored for the full four years, but nobody should count on that being the situation. Was there anything specific in First and Now's reaction then that kind of hints at where the Greens are going to take their campaign? I mean, she threw out the line about how the, the the other two parties, the NDP and the Liberals, want to move backwards, where the Greens want to move forward. You know, very much kind of the the third party positioning on a lot of stuff. Nothing really stood out like super clearly to me as new information about how the Greens would position themselves. I guess the other disadvantage the Greens are facing is having just concluded their leadership race in the last week, we found out that Sonia Firstnow was a leader, I think a week ago today. They're now in the toughest position of having to find and nominate candidates in almost every riding. The NDP and Liberals started with about almost half the province of existing MLAs, minus a half a dozen each who have resigned or announced their resignations or intentions not to run again. But the Greens are starting from two MLAs and probably a couple interested names in every other riding. They need to find a lot of candidates because they probably want to try and run pretty close to a full slate to look like a serious party again. Yeah, she announced that they were going to be running a full slate of candidates or intend to. But yeah, it's tough. Like Vetting takes a lot of time. It's really hard for a third party that just doesn't have many resources to spend that much on candidate vetting. Especially if you have a number of potential candidates who are kind of waiting to see who won. Exactly. And the last election, they had to dump a couple candidates because stuff came out that wasn't properly vetted. But the federal Greens, I think, had issues this past election with that. The federal conservatives had issues with that. Every party has. Every party does. But the big parties have enough trouble with that. The, The little ones are sure to 
you know, nominate someone who shouldn't have been because they weren't able to actually do the proper vetting ahead of time. And with 33 days and minus two weeks of that, because that's when the ballot deadline is, it's just not likely to happen where they're actually going to be able to do the proper vetting. And there will no doubt be some embarrassing moments for the Dream Party during this. Well, but let's bring it to our last topic for the night. Since we're talking about vetting and embarrassing moments, I think the first one for any of the parties to have to face is what I'm going to call the stitch up and sticking, which is, I think we talked about this briefly, the potential nomination race in Stikeen up in Northern BC, Doug Donaldson's former riding. Nathan Cullen had put his name forward as a potential candidate there. We talked about how Anita McPhee, a local Indigenous leader and woman, had also put, been talking about running. Uh, the BC NDP announced this afternoon who all of their already approved candidates were, and Nathan Cullen was among those listed, having already taken the nomination in Stikine. And this raised a number of eyebrows as the BC NDP's equity policy says if you have a retiring MLA like Doug Donaldson, the next candidate should be from an equity-seeking group, whether that's a woman, a person of color, someone with a disability, someone from the queer community, and so on and so forth. And as far as anyone knows, Nathan Cullen does not meet that threshold. And so the party had to find a reason why he would get it. And the argument is they could not find a candidate who was from an equity-seeking group. And Anita McPhee didn't qualify because her nomination paper didn't have enough valid signatures by the time of the deadline for that writing. And they managed to sort that out this morning, but it was too late because, you know, we're already into an election and they'd already decided it. And now Nathan Cullen's the candidate. So deal with it. And most embarrassingly of all is McPhee learned that she was disqualified via Rob Shaw's Twitter account this afternoon because no one had the courtesy to give her a phone call. Yeah. Speaking of no one having the courtesy to give anyone a phone call, apparently Sonia first now, you know, leader of the party in the conference supply agreement also didn't merit a phone call prior to the election being called. But yeah, getting back to the sticking issue, we went through the whole issues around these sorts of equity policies, especially when they're applied at the writing level. But they, they really screwed this up because they should not have gotten into a place where a star candidate, well-liked former federal MP, was going to be in a position where either he gets disqualified for not meeting the equity requirements or somebody very clearly should be getting through the nomination because of the equity requirements won't get it. And they just, they should never have gotten themselves in a position where that was going to become an issue. And that becomes the story of day one. And also the story of the week leading up to it. And like, it seems like, Every step of this was mishandled up until this, like, McPhee tweeting back at journalists being like, this is the first I've heard of any of this. Like, this went poorly from the party side. Now, the party and the government are different people, so this isn't John Horgan himself's fault, but these are the people who are picking who's in charge. And and only that. Like, these are the people who may be in senior staff positions, after the election, like 
yeah, it's not technically the premier do, making this decision, but it's very much the people the premier is happy to surround himself with and trust in key roles. It's a bit disappointing from my view of Nathan Cullen. Like, I've largely liked him as a politician. I didn't end up putting him at the top of my ballot when he ran for federal NDP leader against Tom Mulcair, I think in 2011, I believe it was, right after Jack Layton died. Ultimately, because I didn't really believe in his let's not run against the liberals and they won't run against us and we'll just like have a non-compete because getting Harper out is the main thing. I found it too smart and cynical by half, but that's an entirely different debate. You know, beyond that, I thought he was a very personable and smart and talented politician. In this situation, I'd almost hope he'd be the bigger person and say, you know what, this doesn't pass the smell test to me. I don't want the nomination under this cloud. I either want a fair fight with Anita McPhee, and he doesn't have to pass judgment on the equity issue, but at least could have a nomination battle, or move next door and take on Ellis Ross and Skeena. But instead, he kind of enters BC politics under a bit of a cloud. It's one of those things, like, no no matter what he does, it's not going to look great for him. Just, like, having to walk with your tail between your legs to, to a neighbor in riding, that's also not a great look. No matter what, there's no way everyone was going to come out of this looking good. And I'm sure Nathan Collin was talking to people like weeks to months in advance. Was probably, you know, assured that, oh, you'll be a shoe on for this riding, you know, we'll get you the nomination, no problem. And then the whole thing kind of blew up. And like, it's the managers of the party that let this happen or are really mm-hmm. the ones who. Yeah, blame here. And like, once you've gone to the trouble of like announcing, you know, putting your capital reputation on the line for this one, like it's hard to just pull out as well. And like, I you can raise the issue of the equity, and like, I have my problems with, with applying it at the writing level for reasons just like this, as opposed to the slate level. But like, I, I also can't really blame him for once he decided to go for it wanting to keep on going for it. And Cullen's official story is that he only decided to seek the nomination after he learned of Doug Donaldson's retirement in the last couple of weeks. Whether you believe that or not is, you know, up to you. I'm going to guess the, the former federal MP and the current MLA for an area, especially when they're from the same probably probably talk to each other. <gasps> probably. But I think that's as good a place as any to leave this special emergency pod. So I just want to actually throw one thing in here. While we're recording this, my parents actually just tested me. And they are also not keen on this election. So if you want to get the view from the people who don't spend all their time thinking about and podcasting about politics, that's at least a, a small, if slightly anecdotal, example of where the public may be at with the election being called. We'll find out in one to two weeks how that attitude grows or shrinks. We'll be back on Friday with our usual weekly episode. Remember to register to vote. Elections.bc.ca. Click the buttons from there. Get your mail-in ballot. Figure out when to vote in advance. Wash your hands and stay safe. Stay safe.